0: Heritage, thank you so much. Uh, As an alumni myself, uh, it's encouraging to see how God has continued to use Heritage for his glory and raising up men and women for ministry. Uh, So that is also, that always warns my heart, and Heritage holds a place in my heart as well. Uh, I think a few of us are alumni from there, so that's an exciting thing to see God doing that. Uh, We are a partner church with Heritage, which means that if you're interested in taking some classes at Heritage, you get a nice little discount. So... Uh, If you can come and talk to myself about that or Pastor Matt, and we would love to do that with you. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John. We're in John 16, continuing in our sermon series today Uh, in John. And I think uh, as the testimony was so clearly articulated uh, earlier today in our worship service, do you ever feel as those uh, that your life is just full of a bunch of losses, If you were a gambling person, which I hope you're not, but if you were, do you feel like you're always at the table losing? One of the blessings of being a Christian, and especially as we're looking into this passage we have to remember the context of what is happening. So G- this is called the farewell discourse. Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he is not going to be there. He had the last supper. He he sat and broke bread with them reminding them as we just did what communion is all about so that Jesus is going that he will come back. And now he's left, and now they're kind of walking along the streets into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's getting ready for that final thing, that final act of redemptive history of dying on the cross for our sins, where he will three days later rise again and ascend to his Father. But as you think about that, one of the blessings of being a Christian is knowing that God is at work in our lives in such a way that even our losses end up to be gains. Think about it. Loss of a job, serious illness, broken relationships. Over and over, serious Christians who turn to God in times of loss come through praising God. Why and how is that possible? The psalmist praised God when he said in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. When was the last time you said that? That I might learn your statutes. In Christ, we find that God often takes away our material goods in order to give spiritual riches. So, how do we know that this is true? In short, we look at how God has worked out throughout redemptive history. Even in this account, as Jesus prepares his disciples for him leaving, they are experiencing a great and amazing loss. It even blinds them to what is going to be accomplished when Jesus leaves. As he prepares them for that, to take up the cross and return into heaven. In Christ, even our losses end up as gains but how so if you have your bibles john chapter 16 will be in john chapter 4 or verse 4 which says this i did not say these things to you from the beginning because well i was with you but now i am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me where are you going But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, The things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come together to continue to worship you. Lord, this is not a time when our ears get to be tickled, but a time for us to worship as we look and reflect upon what you have said to us specifically through your word. Lord, we pray for other churches here in London who are gathering to do the same thing, to sing songs, to open your word together, to preach your word. And Lord, we pray that the gospel may may go forth from those pulpits, that lives would be changed, that you would call people to yourself, that your kingdom here in London would grow as you call people to yourself through the faithful preaching of your word. And Lord, we think of churches like Redemption, and we pray for them as they gather in the same way as we do, that you would bless them as they seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. That you would use them to grow your kingdom here in London. We pray for Pastor Norm and the elders as they continue to do that. And Lord, as we come and we gather and we open up your word together, Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. And I want to speak of you, I want to praise you, and I want to praise your name. And Lord, there is no way I can do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? So God, by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. In verses 4 to 7, we see that Jesus leaves to send the Spirit. Jesus' departure is in sight. It's almost there. It's coming. In fact, we are looking at his final hours. So Jesus takes the time to encourage his disciples about the future ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as Baptists, we're like, what? Holy Spirit? But here, Jesus takes time to remind his disciples and us. In verse 4, Jesus has been with them, so there wasn't any need to discuss this anymore. And he's preparing them that he is going to be going, as he says in verse 5. He wants to prepare his disciples for when he is gone and the Holy Spirit comes. And then they ask this question, and they don't ask this question where are you going? But here's the thing, back in chapter 14, verses 5 to 6, this question actually came up. And But here Jesus is talking about how they haven't asked about him leaving in terms of what it will accomplish. They are so distraught that their friend, their best friend, is leaving that they can't think of the blessing of him leaving. As he says in verse 6, because, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Why are they so troubled? Because their friend is going away. And they are too troubled to even think about that. Have you ever been there where your mind is so preoccupied with the situation that's in front of you that you can't see anything good coming out of that? And what I really appreciate is Jesus' gentleness as he talks with his disciples. See, oftentimes as people, and I'm guilty of this above all, is I usually come with a hammer rather than gentleness. And here Jesus comes with gentleness as he talks to his disciples, and he doesn't rebuke them sternly, but he does point out their lack of interest in where he is going and what it will accomplish. And when Jesus points out that their hearts are filled with sorrow, Jesus addresses that the way their own concerns have eclipsed their interest in what God is doing. The disciples are so focused on themselves and their own circumstances and what is about to happen, that when their eyes are fixated on themselves, they don't see that way that God is working for their benefit at this time. Why are you so downtrouted, O my soul? one of my favorite psalms. Is that not the same with us? How often do we allow our eyes to be fixated on the immediate and take our eyes off of the eternal? When we forget that in all things there is a purpose to whatever we may be going through. As verse 7 comes along, he says, I tell you the truth, it is for their benefit that he goes because the Holy Spirit will be sent. Why does Jesus have to go away? It is just so that, is it really all just about sending the Holy Spirit? There's got to be a little bit more. The Old Testament prophesied that a new age would come that would bring in a new experience of of the Spirit. I love Ezekiel 36, 26-27, which says it this way, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Sorry, obey my rules. What Jesus is telling his disciples is that in order to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, he has to go away. If Jesus doesn't go away, the Father's wrath is not propitiated. The disciples aren't cleansed and sanctified by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament... And the old covenants aren't fulfilled. Jesus has to go away. And if those things aren't fulfilled, it means that the new age that Ezekiel 36 talks about, the new covenant, doesn't happen. This is why Jesus says he has to go away to send the Spirit. If Jesus goes to the Father, he makes it possible for his disciples to enjoy the new age that this Old Testament passage is talking about. So just like Jesus' apostles... We share great blessing through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For all believers, all who believe in Jesus, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Romans nine, sorry, 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Or even in Galatians 3, verse 2, it says, Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? As we look at this, we see that the Holy Spirit constantly brings attention to Jesus. And as he indwells us, he, he nestles the gospel into our hearts and applies the finished work of Jesus to our lives. Romans 8, 16 says the Spirit himself bears bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. To see and enjoy grace is the supreme work of the Holy Spirit as he bears witness to the truth and the comfort of God's word in our hearts. If the Holy Spirit did not come, if Jesus did not go to send the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit that indwells us. That gives us the comforts, but it also the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament wouldn't happen either. The Spirit is the perfect helper, and He frees us from trying to live the Christian life in our own power. The gospel is not do more, try hard; rather, it is see Jesus and surrender to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus who will free us to live the Christian life in his power. He will also convict the world. This is the counter-rat race culture that we find ourselves in. If I work hard enough, I'll get there eventually. But the gospel says you can't work hard enough. The gospel says rest in Jesus and surrender to the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will also convict the world. As you see in verses 8 to 11, it says he will convict the world. When Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to a world that would not see its sin without his ministry. The Spirit convicts the world of its sin and shows the need of Jesus' truth in such a way that many repent and believe and will be saved. I love Acts 2, and for this reason, because I think Peter and I would be best friends. Actually, I don't know. We're probably both opinionated and we wouldn't like each other, but who knows? But I, I, I listen to, I look at Peter and I go in verse 2, and I go, man, if God can use Peter, he can use me. Peter preaches his first sermon, his first sermon in Acts 2. I don't want to talk about what my first sermon was like. And he says in Acts 2, verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If Peter has said that even a day earlier, or days earlier, the results, I would think, would not be the same. Because as Paul preaches his very first sermon, the church explodes. And God calls people to himself. The Holy Spirit convicted those who were hearing. The Spirit present to convict the hearers of what Peter, who Peter was talking to. As we see in Acts 2.37, I think it shows what the Holy Spirit does by convicting as the hearers. They were cut to their hearts as Peter spoke. Convicted, they asked Peter, what should they do? I think I look at this passage and as a preacher I go, what a convicting passage. Because as a preacher we, we try to hone that art. So even at Heritage they have a whole a graduate certificate on trying to improve your preaching. It is a bit of an art and a science and we try to get better at it. We never arrive. Some are A plus and some will always be the C on their best day. I know. But what does the conviction, who does the conviction? Was it the rhetoric of Peter? Is it my rhetoric? Is it the skills of the preacher that does the convicting? Although a preacher should seek to have good rhetoric skills uh, that a preacher should have, and although a preacher should seek to have good Uh, gifts and improve on those it is purely by the holy spirit who does the convicting now let's apply that to our everyday lives our job as christians is to be faithful in what we have been called to do to be disciples who make disciples of jesus christ should we understand apologetics and what it means to defend our faith absolutely but what are you resting in as you go and be faithful to that my job is to go proclaim the gospel, not to convict people. I remember this more adequately. When I was in my older teen years, God was using a lot of circumstances to break me, and God finally broke me, and I realized that my, I had sin in my life that I had to deal with, and I dealt with that. And by God's grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit, he continued to sanctify me and continues to this day. But one of the outcomes of that is my youth pastor came up to me and said, Hey, Nate, I think you should uh, say your testimony at NBC, at snow camp, with 400 other kids. You've got to keep in mind of who I am. This is probably one of the most nervous things for me is being in front of people. I don't, I, I could leave it but by God's grace, I'm here. I'm, I was a guy who cried at the thought of it. So my youth pastor says, hey, can you do that? And I think I took a little bit longer to say yes. And I said, sure, let's go do that. And I went up there, and I said my testimony at a snow camp at NBC with all those other kids. Folks, it was awful. It was so bad. To this day, I cringe. It's been 20 years. And I still go back, and I go, what? It happened. It was so long and so dry and so bad. But a few years later, uh, when I was at Heritage, I went out to Barry with a bunch of my friends. I get into the car with a bunch of my friends, and we go and pick up his little brother. And his little brother sits sits in beside me, and he looks at me and goes, Hey, you're that guy that did his testimony at NBC a few years back. And I go, Oh, Lord, no, please. (laughs) You know what he says to me? He says, God really spoke to me in that. Yeah. Guys, it's not this, yes, get better. Yeah. But Jesus says it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. In verse 9, he says, He'll convict concerning sin because they do not believe. And unbelief is a serious sin because it calls the God, the Word, Uh, He calls God, who is the word of truth, a liar. We see that in 1 John 5, 10. It says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If someone doesn't believe God, then there is no way for them to be forgiven of their sins. Why? Because to say no to belief in God is to be hostile to God's Son, who alone is a propitiation of our sins. Jesus Christ, who is our source of salvation. In verse 10, the Holy Spirit will convict concerning righteousness, and the Holy Spirit will convict in that way. Concerning Jesus' righteousness, that he was a righteous man and not a liar, that the Holy Spirit will do this after Jesus leaves, when no one will see him because he has gone to the Father. But after the Holy Spirit will come and convict people that Jesus was a righteous person and unjustly slain. The Holy Spirit in verse 11 will convict concerning judgment, casting out of this world, the the ruler of this world by. by the cross which guarantees that all who rebel against Jesus will face judgment the cross puts true righteousness on display it shows it exposes it condemns wickedness as god's holiness and love are shown the cross condemns the rebel satan because it shows him to be an unrighteous rebel who who rebelled against an just god and I want you to dwell upon this with me. See those who receive Jesus are those who formerly belonged to a world but are now not of this world. We looked at this last week. Because they have been convicted by the holy spirit of the sin of unbelief. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit of the righteousness of God in Christ that was shown on the cross as Jesus died as a substitute for God's people, the ransom for sinners, the propitiation of God's wrath, and the sanctification of God's holiness. The Holy Spirit has brought his conviction to Satan too, who is the architect and founder of those who, would li- who, who live as rebels. This is why it's better for us that Jesus left, so that we would receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, who is who is essential to any sinner's salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that gives takes my heart of stone and, and gives me a heart of flesh that enables me to believe, that convicts me of my need of a Savior. That I can't do it all. On my, I can't do it on my own. When he was on earth, Jesus accomplished our salvation by dying for our sins. When Jesus goes to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit applies what Jesus achieved to the individual soul through the gift of faith. Look, your soul, you and I, together are so depraved in sin that unless the Holy Spirit came to apply with divine power the saving benefits of what Jesus purchased on the cross, there is no way you would believe and be saved. Followers of Jesus are those who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit that Jesus should be believed, that Jesus established righteousness at the cross, and that Jesus triumphed over the despicable rogue who betrayed the one who is true and beautiful and good. Christians have seen that they deserve to be punished along with what Jesus absorbed on the cross. They have turned from the way that leads to death and have thrown themselves at the feet of the conqueror who has shown such amazing mercy. It is not possible even to be a Christian and to be saved from God's wrath without being convicted of sin and righteousness. We must confess our sin and seek refuge in Christ's blood. But if we want to be greatly used by the Spirit today and His work of conviction always takes place through the witness of Christ's people, as we ourselves go out to make disciples of Jesus Christ, then we must also be convicted concerning the judgment of this world. Satan is defeated. The reign of sin is broken in Christ. Do you believe that? Are you convicted of Christ's triumph and reign over all? Does your life show that you are? Let us all pray. Let us all pray for the Spirit's conviction of Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and this world. So that through the witness that we do, as, as, as of our, our yielded lives to the Holy Spirit, that that would bring conviction and save many. In verses 12 to 15, we see that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. And here Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, the third person of the Godhead who was called to our side to minister on Christ's behalf. In, in the five passages of this farewell discourse dealing with the Spirit, Jesus has taught us five things. That the Holy Spirit is another helper taking Christ's place in discipling his followers. The second one is that, we, that he would enable the apostles to remember all that Jesus had taught them. The third one is that the Holy Spirit, in the midst of persecution, He would empower the believers to witness to Jesus, and we would become even bolder in declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. The fourth one would be the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment of this world. But the fifth would guide the disciples into a whole into a, into a saving truth. See, this final point is the emphasis of this section here. Jesus, having spoken of the Spirit's convicting ministry to the world, adds that the Spirit reveals, has a revealing ministry to the church. As he says in verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. And before some student comes and says, Jesus promised that I would understand all truth, and you haven't studied for your exam, that's demoral. That's not what this is talking about. It's not a temporal knowledge of every kind. I wish that was the case. Then I would never forget everybody's name all the time. But not like, it's not like you're going to develop some sort of super brain power. But we're talking about God's truth. The Holy Spirit will guide Jesus' followers and direct them. This is how the disciples personally write or oversee the writing of all of the books of the New Testament. But the promise is also for those who are in Christ, for all of us who believe and are resting in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, for all Christians, as the Holy Spirit leads and guides all who are in Christ. We see that in Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God we in Galatians 5, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Jesus also says that he, the Holy Spirit will be the one who, who doesn't even speak on his own authority. The Spirit will behave as Jesus did, just as Jesus didn't act or speak on his own authority, so the Holy Spirit doesn't either. And he will speak and, 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 and work in the hearts of his disciples of things that are to come, Who knows the future? I think this is an important theological statement about the Holy Spirit. Don't overlook this. Who knows the future? God. If the Holy Spirit knows the future, he is God. He's not some sort of force like we see in Star Wars. He's not an entity. He is God, the third person of the Godhead. Only God can know what the future holds, and this gives evidence of the full deity of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, we see John, the writer of Revelation, carried along by the Spirit to prophesy all that Jesus reveals to him. We see also in 2 Peter verse 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." All these things we're learning about who He is. The Holy Spirit will take what is Jesus's, as He says in verse 14, and declare it to you. Jesus then adds that the the Spirit will reveal what belongs to Jesus, showing that the Spirit will hear and speak things that are about Jesus. And He will glorify Jesus. The whole purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to glorify Jesus. I, I, you can study the Trinity forever. Well, you should be able to because it's God and he's infinite. But understanding how the Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit, how they are all equal but are also subjected to one to the Father is an amazing thing to break down. For, all of, for some of us, we think about that in terms of practically and complementarianism. We're all created equal before the eyes of God, but we all have different roles as well. As he says in verse 15, for you and I, when we realize why the Holy Spirit was sent into this world, we won't only recognize that our calling is summed up in our relationship to Christ, but also realize that the treasures of God for us are all found in and summed up in Christ. Look at what Jesus says here in John 16, 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, Christian salvation is Trinitarian. It brings us the blessing of each of the persons of the glorious Godhead, God the Father, to take us as his children, Christ the Savior, Shepherd to gain our salvation, and the Spirit Helper to guide us into all truth and unite us to Christ, in whom all divine blessings are found. These are the things that we learn about why it is a blessing that Jesus had to go. What do we do with all of this, you may ask? I think the main thing, the main point that I kind of get out of this is this. We can be confident that God has a plan involving His conforming, conforming us to His image of Christ and resulting in His being glorified. We go through this life often thinking that many of the circumstances that we find ourselves in are kind of like losing The disciples felt like that too. But one of the blessings of being a Christian is knowing that God is at work in our lives in such a way that even our losses end up as gains. And when we look at Jesus Christ and how he sends the Holy Spirit, we can see more and more of what he is doing for us. We can be confident that God has a plan involving his conforming us to the image of Christ and resulting in his being glorified. Let us continue to glorify our God together. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I know often, like the disciples, we feel and wonder why all these things are happening. Help us to trust that you are good and that whatever we're going through has a purpose. Lord, help us to, to learn more and more of who you are and what you have done for us. Help us to be people who go out and make disciples of Jesus Christ, declaring who you are not based upon our own ability to convict people, but because you alone can convict. Help us as simply to be faithful. And amen.